Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code AUDIO to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code AUDIO at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code AUDIO. Hey, everybody, we got a great one today. You know, for a change. And I can guarantee that this is actually a great one and not one of our usual stinkers because it's a best of. And during Christmas time and New Year's, Peter and I take a break here at uh, the podcast and run a couple of best ofs for you. And this one is maybe the best of the best of. And this time, I mean that, because it's my conversation with Jim Gaffigan, who for my money is one of the great stand-ups of our era. And Jim is sort of notorious for being a clean act that the whole family can go to and love. He's not political. He doesn't do political stuff. So he attracts audiences in very red areas of the country and very blue areas without working blue or red. But in 2020, he just had to speak out about Donald Trump, and we talk about that. He may have lost some fans, but it didn't hurt him at all. He's got a monster tour coming up this winter and spring, that includes, of course, uh, New York City and uh, Portland, Oregon, but also Pensacola, Florida, and Sugarland, Texas, and let's see, Thackersville, Oklahoma. I don't know where that is. But Jim Gaffigan is loved all over this country, and if you haven't heard this conversation, I know you'll love him too. So we'll be back with some new shows in January, but for now, my conversation with Jim Gaffigan, another great one, you know, for a change. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash Franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash Franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash Franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation 
doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage and a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at amazon.com slash instant eraser foundation. I like to say, we always say uh, this podcast is like the daily without the resources of the New York Times. It's very similar. (laughs) Now, when do you listen to that? You wake up and you turn it on? No, I I do it randomly. I you know it's uh, I'm a random person. Yeah, I don't have good habits. <laughs> I also think in New York City, unless you have like a commute on the subway, it's like when do you listen to a podcast? Whereas people, you know, that drive, I can totally get it. Yeah, and and, and actually, when the pandemic hit, yeah, it, it was t- podcast took a big hit because oh I yeah because that. that would make sense yeah. Some things make sense. Yeah. But you as a comedian like to explore things that don't seem to make sense. It's called a point of view. (laughs) Uh, I really love uh, your stuff. Oh, thank you. And I think because you're prolific, so prolific. what, What special is this for Netflix? How many? This will be my ninth hour special. Okay. Holy shit. Well, you know, yeah, I, uh, <laughs> yeah, I didn't, but you know, comedy is all, what people don't realize, it's all self-assignment. Do you know what I mean? Like there are very talented people that could, you know, have nine specials, but it's self-assignment. And I also feel like, you know, there's nothing more rewarding than coming up with a new bit, right? Yep. Yep. So let's talk about that. Uh, let's talk about your, dare I say, process. In my process. What's your process? I call it a process. Oh, that's much better. Okay. What's, uh, I mean, we, we've talked a little bit about that. Uh, one of the things we talked about is that your wife has at times written with you. Yes. And uh, when, when I read that, I got so mad at my wife. Because I I felt like, honey, why don't you write <laughs> like Jim Gavigan's wife writes? Well, it is interesting because like some of why I started giving credit is obviously, you know, it was the truth. But also I feel as though it's that in, yeah. <laughs> in some uh, in some ways, I feel like these partners, these life partners have been a sounding board for so many people. I mean, you know, particularly comedians that stand-ups that are just trying out bits before they leave their apartment or home. You know, if you're not in a writer's room, you know, you're you know, if you're coming up with an idea, you're bouncing it off the person in the room and if you're with someone, you're, you're going to do it. Do you ever get mad at your wife for not I've never been so? angry at my wife once. <laughs> yeah. No, there's it's you know, it's such an evolution uh because you know, we have five kids, and before we had children, we used to, the collaboration was at a different level. I would do a show. She would come to, with me to shows, sure. and then we would discuss it over a glass of wine. And then maybe when we had one or two kids, 
we would put the kids to sleep. And now we have teenagers. So like there's just it's like living in Grand Central. So you have five kids. Yeah. Okay. Um Gaffigan. What's your wife's maiden name? Noth. She's one of nine. So it's kind of Alsace Lorraine German or whatever. Oh yeah. My dad's side is Alsace. Oh really? Yeah. And her her grandfather uh wrote a book called Berlin Tenement, and he escaped with my wife's grandmother, who was Jewish, and they, uh, these Dominican priests helped her escape, and they hid her. They said she was like their cleaning lady. And her my wife's grandfather was kind of like a character, and he would show up, and then suddenly this woman that lived with priests got pregnant. But anyway, so they <laughs> saved her life. So she converted. Where was this? Where were this these was Dominican in, in, priests? In France somewhere. And so my uh, my father-in-law's name is Dominic because of the Dominican nuns that say And, and Dominic, that's a Catholic yeah, order. Catholic order. And what are the Dominicans like? I, I know the Jesuits. I like the Jesuits. Yeah. I don't know. I should know. I mean, are you Catholic? Like, are you, I am, bro, but you know, I'm not like Colbert Catholic. Colbert like knows like the history, and you know, he could go toe to toe with any you know St. Thomas More and all this. But like, I know some of it. There's a lot to know, and I'm lazy. I outdate you in my religion, and I know not not very much. <laughs> it is weird. It's it's weird when you have a religion or just even a cultural association with a religion. That people assume you would know all these things. Like, you're like, well, I don't know that. You know what I mean? I yeah, I thought that. that you would know what. Dominican I know that when my wife was in the hospital, I was praying. You know what I mean? That's what I know. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so uh, the process with your wife. So, so it changed. It changed. It changed. It, yeah, it's ever evolving. That's not to say that her fingerprints are not on everything and on certain projects. I mean, I should also say my wife is my acting coach. You know, when I was on Broadway, she was instrumental in preparing me for that. God, and, now I got something else to be mad at Franny about. And and also, uh, what I wrote two books, but, and, y you know, your books are great. My books are okay. And she transformed, <laughs> like, I would write paragraphs, and she would be like, you know, this is supposed to be an essay. And I'm like, can you fix it? <laughs> so she's much more, because her, her father was a, uh, worked for a newspaper and is a writer. So she. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Can much more there you go. do the as, essay. As we say in Minnesota, there you go. There you go. Yeah. And, you, and she's Milwaukee, you said? Yes, she's Milwaukee. And you're near Gary. I'm near Gary in Indiana. Yeah. Uh, so. Which is kind of, it's Chicago land, but Chicago right, doesn't right. admit to it. And also Indiana doesn't admit to it. So you're close to Gary. You were close to Gary? Yeah, very close like to Gary. Like a suburb of Gary? Yeah. I mean, they'd given up on suburbs of Gary <laughs> along. Like, it was like, Gary was like the first white flight area, I suppose. In 1937, Gary was Time Magazine's most beautiful city in the world. Really? Yes. And it's... Uh, That's just, shocking. Yeah. So, like, <laughs> it was like, like, there was a time... Wait, in the what? In the world? In the world. <laughs> yeah. And... Uh, Rome? No. No, I know. Well, maybe I'm I'm probably getting something wrong. But it's also an American magazine. You know what I mean? Uh -huh. It was an American magazine in 1937. You know what I mean? 
Yes. Okay. Uh, we're we're jingoistic in thirty. Yeah. There was a little. You know. They were still kind of like. You know. But we in 1937, a lot of Americans really liked Germany. Well, I think <laughs> I think in like at the start of World War One or World War Two, might have been World War One. More Americans spoke German than English. Did you know that? No. I read that. I think that's wrong. I don't know. We should have someone find that. No, I'm serious. There was, there's an enormous, it's so weird because like I travel all around America because I'm a great American. No, but like there is. You do travel all the, how many gigs do you do a year? How many shows do you do a year? I would say, I say like I'll do three. I, I probably perform 300 nights a year. Really? But, you know, sometimes that's in New York City at Gotham Comedy Club. That's, you know, and that's part of the writing process. I'm yep. sure, you know, you know the feeling. You're up there and you're like, you know what? This yeah. this thing works. You know, we did a spot together. And uh, at Gotham. Yeah. It's, you know, the, it's what's so great about stand-up is it is this conversation with the audience. And so the feedback you get from the audience will you hear it. tell you, you hear where it. to go. Yeah, I mean, I've been doing a tour. Um, it's just a 15-city tour, so I'm a piker. Uh, but I can feel myself getting stronger, and I go down to the yeah. Comedy Cellar. Yeah. But I like Gotham a lot. Yeah. yeah. That's a nice club. Yeah, I mean, Christmas nice only just – it's so funny because I – you want to hear something really funny. So Christmas Illy no. – uh, this is not funny. Don't worry. <laughs> Chris Mazzilli, um, I've known him forever, and he worked at a comedy club, and he he wanted to start a comedy club that was clean, meaning like, you know, his family had a grocery store, and I think on Long Island, and he was like, I want to open a comedy club where someone's girlfriend or wife can go to the bathroom, and that's not disgusting. That shows you how long. Oh, clean, like yeah, actually, yeah. like hygienic but, clean. But one of the, he told me this, that, one of the people that used to do stand-up when I started was Brian Kilmeade of Fox News, Oof. Fox and Friends. Yeah, horrible, horrible. Isn't that person. amazing? You know, like the intersection of entertainment and news is pretty, the, oh, yeah. the overlap's pretty consistent. I I think this is a story you might, do you ever watch like MSNBC and CNN yeah. and that stuff? Okay. Yeah. So I watch a lot and my wife watches a lot. So uh, I went to the premiere of Veep, the last season of Veep, yeah. at like, uh, I can't remember, it was Avery Fisher Hall or something. And there was a party afterwards, and I stayed kind of late, and Ari Melber is there. Yeah. And so uh, we, we said, I like him, and we're yeah. talking, and he goes like, have you noticed that I do a lot of bad jokes on my show, but I I recognize, you know, that they're bad jokes? And I said... Uh huh, or you could do good jokes, <laughs> <laughs> and that's how I feel. Like I have this theory that all newscasters or all political newscasters, like Brian Brian uh, Williams, is very funny. He's very funny. Brian Williams is very funny. Keith Oberman, huge comedy fan and, and huge. funny, like a total comedy nerd. Yeah. And then, like, Ari's, uh, you know, but it's also, it's comedy and music. Like, Ari's really into music. Yeah, he's uh, introduced the MSNBC audience to a lot of uh, hip-hop. But it is it is fascinating how much they want to do the comedy. They want Like, Rachel wants to be funny all the time. Yeah, she's, she's joking all the time. 
it's so interesting. Like, even when you meet musicians that want to be funny, I'm like, like, to me, I look at music as magic. Like, you know, like the Foo Fighters, what they do is like magic to me. Adele is magic. You know, Jay-Z, it's like, what do you, how do you do that? Of course. And they're like, they want to be comedians, which is weird. Like, even like I did this benefit show and... Bruce Springsteen was there, and he told all these jokes. Do you know what I mean? And they were really filthy. I mean, I enjoyed it because it's kind of like it's just strange to see someone. And you know, he's Wait, from, this was on stage. You said this was the, this was on stage, and it was really uh, charming in, a, in an interesting way because it wasn't they weren't inappropriate. You know what I mean? They were just kind of well. You're talking about your friend era. who wanted to open a, a clean club. Yeah. But I thought you meant clean, like that the comics worked clean. Did you yeah. mean that too? No, no, no. Okay. No. Well, that that <laughs> you just being wanted said, a, a club where the, the your that, someone could that, go to the to, uh, the yeah. Men's that room was and, something that was definitely missing from. I mean, Caroline's also was very um, high end. I guess yeah. I should have said high end, okay, you know, or a nice place. But now that's the standard in most comedy clubs. Yeah, uh, I do the comedy cellar a lot, and it's yeah. perfectly fine. The bathroom, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it used to be dangerous, you know. Not dangerous, but like the other day there, this was for the first time that I went to the bathroom there. They had a guy hand you a towel. Yeah, you don't need that. I just did. You ever see Kevin Nealon's piece uh, where he is that guy, but it's Harvey Keitel. You know, he folds the paper for him. I mean, it's <laughs> he gets a he gets a newspaper for him. Yeah, it's uh, Kevin's. Kevin did attitude, yeah. right? Now yeah. you watched SNL. Yeah, did, didn't you like look at Kevin and go, "He's brilliant." He, yeah, his attitude. Yeah, and there's there's something about. I mean, he has a cadence and a dry. I mean, I like dry. You're dry. Mm-hmm. If you like dry, <laughs> he's dry, you know? Well, what are you? Are you? I think I'm dry, hopefully. Yeah, I, I, I think you are, but you are you get wet laughs. I mean, people are yeah. laughing the whole time. Yeah. I think that you sometimes are underestimated just in terms of the pantheon of the great comedians working now. And you'll hear Chappelle, and, uh, who's great, and... Uh, all there's a lot of great comedians, but because I think it's partly because you work clean. Yeah. By the way, that when uh, when you said a clean place, I thought you're referring to how dirty some exact at at the Comedy Cellar. I was just shocked because I hadn't yeah. done clubs in forever. Yeah. And how dirt filthy it is, and at a certain point, I was. I was just going, this is ridiculous. You can't. And then I started going like, oh, there's some really good filthy comics. Oh, yeah. You know, when I uh, performed the comedy cellar, there's, uh, th- these comics are, are, are so dirty that about half to three quarters of the time, I can start my act by saying, oh, you know, Brian killed, but uh, no wonder he stole my act. Right, right. And it's just following someone who's so filthy. Right. <laughs> But I, it, it curls your hair. But then you start to listen, and there's a, a difference. Oh, yeah. No, and there is uh, a nuance. You know, and when we say, like, filth, we're not talking about curse words or um, 
taboo topics. We're talking about like the raw guts of humanity and like stuff that like husbands and wives don't talk about. You know what I mean? But like some of that is people love that. People love that that honesty. But, you know, I'm kind of an old school guy in that uh, I think that I love filthy humor. I love, you know, and I think some comedians, it's totally, you know, it's a, you got to be authentic. So it's like I wouldn't want Chris Rock or Lewis Black to not curse. You know what I mean? That would be wrong. But I do think it's like you got to fit your persona. So There's like, a difference between cursing and some of the stuff. Yeah. Which involves yeah. a lot of very graphic stuff. But I think like shock and irreverence is like liberty. Like the concept is just always being pushed. And the problem with it always being pushed is that things that were shocking 10 years ago are not shocking and possibly just poor taste. Whereas if, do you know what I mean? It's like, like Bill Hicks is a, an amazing comedian, but if we watched it, we would be like blown away by the level of homophobia, the, the hatred behind some of it and the, the absence of nuance. And that's just about irreverence moving. And so like, I think that some of that irreverence, I mean, you know, I've got teenagers, you know, my 15 year old son loves shock. He loves it. And, mm -hmm. and when we were that age, we did too. When did you start doing comedy? When did you start 1801. doing 1801. <laughs> no, uh, 1990. And how old were you in 1990? I think I was um, maybe 22, 24. You really should know when you were I born. should. Yeah, I do know. All right, so yeah, so I was 24. Okay. Yeah, I should know when I was born. You weren't doing comedy like in school? No, I, I was raised... I'm the youngest of six kids. My father was the first one to go to college in the family. Success was wearing a coat and tie. It took my family generations to get to the middle class. And so it was like the idea of going into entertainment was not, I didn't know anyone in the entertainment industry. Did you? No. Well, actually, not until I started going to a place called the Brave New Workshop in Minneapolis. You, yeah, you know Minneapolis is a really good. Yeah, it's very town. creative. Yeah, and you just did your your uh, tape my special there, your special there yeah. at the State yeah. Theater, and they they're yeah. a great audience. Yeah, amazing. And there's a great comedy club today, right now in Minneapolis called Acme. Acme. Acme One of the best. Great. In yep, the yep, yep. So like, okay, but you were funny, like to your friends. Yeah. So how quickly did your approach to comedy develop when you start at 24 for example I, you and i have discussed this the voice yeah that you have the critic of yeah. your stuff which yeah. is to me a get out of jail free card all yeah. the time <laughs> it helps a lot tell me just do that voice yeah oh that's really weird <laughs> i think franken and jim gaffigan sound similar um but yeah no so that that inside voice is, uh, it's an incredible tool. And it's something that I had as a teenager that I would use to diffuse situations when I would be late or I would say something awkward. And it's just kind of giving voice to somebody, to uh, a different opinion or someone that I'm communicating with. Like, I can't believe Jim's late. Jim was late for the podcast. <laughs> I mean, I thought he was more buttoned up. That's just kind of hostile to be late. 
Do you know what I mean? I just feel like, you know what I mean? I, so you're doing that in high school. Yeah. With friends or with... With friends or, and you know, and I remember in middle school doing it uh, a little bit. It was just giving a voice to someone else and also my insecurities. You know what I mean? Kind of to diffuse this situation. But very often it is that guy yeah. reacting to... It's usually when you've, uh, it seems to me it's when you've really gone in one direction, invested in it, yeah. and then you just undercut it. Yeah, it it, it gives an opportunity for uh, a different point of view on a topic. So if I'm talking about bacon or horses, <laughs> the, the inside voice can articulate the fatigue that the audience might feel. Also, the, um, you know, an opposing view that they might have. Yeah. It's probably more useful today because there is a certain amount of outrage that exists now, right? People feel uh, a possessiveness or a defensiveness on things. So it's probably important for them to feel heard. Yeah, so you have it both ways. Yeah. Which and it's is great. It keeps it fresh. <laughs> and that's, it's usually, uh, you know, something I completely improvise in the shows. Uh-huh. And then if it really works, then I, like, save it and use it later. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. So uh, surrounding a bit. And, you know, particularly if you're trying out a bit and you're not clear, you know, because... People don't realize sometimes you have this formulated idea that you're like, this is magic. And then you do it and the audience stares at you because you haven't communicated it properly. So Can you think of uh, your latest example of that? Well, you know, I'm working on this uh, <laughs> joke where I I talk about my wife has a, a, like things that shouldn't be funny but end up being funny. Like my wife has a swallowing disorder and the audience is like you know what that's not funny you know mm -hmm. don't, don't talk about that you know what i mean <laughs> and she has the swallowing disorder because she had a brain tumor right like, all right red flag number two like let's just move on although you're hilarious about the brain tumor oh thanks way. kind of unfortunate that there's another fruit that's much smaller named grape because you know there's situations in doctor's offices we found a tumor it's the size of a grape thank god I didn't finish. <laughs> Grapefruit. Oh, that's that's very different. <laughs> but you know, like so like understandably people are like, you know what, they, don't do this. You know what I mean? Like, come on, you know. Uh, cause there is an aftertaste to comedy. You know what I mean? It's like even if someone laughs at something. I saw you try that when we were at Gotham, yeah. you tried the uh the swallowing disorder. The swallowing disorder and you I think you just uh, your uh, your waiter comes up to you and says something. Your wife is having a problem, and you yeah. and you just go, "She's fine. She 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 has a brain tumor." <laughs> it's just like you. It's just like and while you're eating, and yeah. you do it while you're, you're shoveling. Like, this, this is good food. soup. This is good soup. You yeah. know, and it's <laughs> it's just like as a couple, you don't want to draw attention to the fact that your wife is like sounds like she's choking. You know it's just how she happens to swallow bread. But everyone in a restaurant doesn't know that. They think someone needs to do the Heimlich. And you're like, you know what? Do I have to stand up to do the Heimlich? Because I don't want my soup to get cold. 
Okay. So are you saying that audiences don't like that? Well, I <laughs> think it's it has been working or I think it's I think it's been working, but I think it's awareness of how it comes across. I think some comedians love the fact that they make the audience feel uncomfortable. And I think that I, you know, I don't get an enjoyment out of it necessarily, but like I'm aware of it. So maybe I'm kind of like giving, you know, I communicate with them that like, don't worry. I know that this is, is weird. You know what I mean? Cause like <laughs> we all are in situations where someone says something and you're like, all right, they've said something that's either, you know, sexist or insensitive. And you're like, all right, this is going to be really awkward. But if the person's like, I know that comes across as sexist, then you'll give them a pass and hopefully they'll prove that it's not. And that's your critical interview. Yeah, hopefully. Doing that job. Okay, we're going to take a little break. We'll be right back with Jim Gaffigan. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. BiteClear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. You you came out and said something in the last election, (laughs) which is not you. That's not what you've done. It's funny. There are some... Comedians, I won't say who, because they will tell me, look, I just want my comedy to speak for itself, and I don't want to take public stances. And you obviously have a very broad audience. Yeah. I I remember seeing you at the grandstand in uh, the State Fair in Minnesota. Yeah. And that's a big, big grandstand and full. You filled it. And that's a lot of people. Different views. Different views. Of course you're going to alienate a lot of your fans. A lot of yeah. your fans, if you say, you know, you can't reelect Trump. Right, right. <laughs> and, you know, on the one hand, yeah, why should people listen to comedians? Right. One. And on the other hand, you have teenagers who must have been yes. talking to you. I mean, I always prided myself on, um, I'm not going to p- pretend that I, you know, have the most diverse audience. But I like the fact that the lesbian couple would be sitting next to the Mormon family at my shows, you know, and they'd both be laughing at the same stuff. But, you know, there was this, you know, that the past summer, I guess it was the summer, you know, we had just gone through the George Floyd thing. We had just, you know, this pandemic had been going on. And there, 
And I've always, you know, I used to, I had a tweet that I said, like, if you're letting uh, a celebrity tell you to who to vote for, you know, you shouldn't vote. You know what I mean? It's just weird. But there there came a time where I was just, I, I was looking at my kids and I was like, I didn't want the passage of time to occur. And my kids are like, why didn't you stand up and say something? I'm like, well, you know, I travel to a lot of smaller markets <laughs> and I'm very big in some farm belt area. You know what I mean? It's like, there, there comes a point where it's like, there's nothing normal about someone who goes on stage and seeks approval from strangers. I'm not trying to present that like, you know, I'm this moral leader. I, I like having people <laughs> laugh at my jokes, but... I do think that there came a point where I was like, all right, I know that people are going to be mad. And it was during, you know, the convention and, you know, I was seeing all these lies working and I wasn't um, speaking to uh, the people that were going to vote for Trump. I was speaking to the people that were kind of where I'm from in a small town in the Midwest. I'm from the Rust Belt that were kind of like ethnically Catholic or whatever, and they were, you know, seeing a nun or, you know, Lou Holtz say that Biden was a bad Catholic, that, you know, that I knew was a lie. And I knew that people that that had common sense knew it was a lie. But I just wanted to, like, go on the record kind of like, this is obviously bullshit. And the 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 weird thing is, is that I had posted stuff, you know, obviously during even like the the George Floyd thing, you know, which is I mean, hopefully that's all right to describe it as the George Floyd thing. There was like one of those things where you had to stand up for like, you know, obviously the right thing. You know, it's like, hey, maybe, you know, maybe we should reevaluate this. And I started to get some people like, hey, uh, you're a comedian, shut up. And then I just, and I, people thought I was drunk. I wasn't drunk. I was just, then I just was like, I describe it as I treat myself. Like, I don't know if that ever happens to you. It's like someone gives you shit. You're like a nice Midwesterner. And then you're like, all right, fuck you, motherfucker. <laughs> you know, like you're going to see another side that you're going to regret that you, you assumed that I was just going to be a docile person. And so I, you know, just kind of unloaded. It's like the Lou Holtz thing. It's like I grew up like going to Notre Dame games. Lou Holtz is a child hero of mine. Mm -hmm. But the fact that he would be this pawn is just like, you know what? Fuck Lou Holtz. And that's where like I think it was so it's such a fascinating thing because, again, like I said, I did it kind of so that. I could look my children in the eyes, you know, but it was really interesting to see um, what I'm sure Sarah Silverman deals with every day. Do you know what I mean? Just this onslaught of mischaracterizations. You know, I just don't want people to just assume because, by the way, I come from a town that, uh, you know, from a part of. Oh, the Midwest that is Rust Belt that like I can understand that they find uh, elitist, you know, they feel condescended sure. to. I totally get it. Absolutely. What I'm saying is you can hate elitists, but don't embrace Trump. That's what I wanted to say. People 
have a right to resent elites because elites are self-serving. Yeah. You know, if you went to an Ivy League school, your kid can get into that. They, they help. They help their own, right? Yeah. And they get SAT training, and they're rich, yeah. and yeah. they get every opportunity there is. And white working class people have have seen the economy such that their kids aren't going to do better than them. Yeah, and where elites are going to be fine, and elites, you know, I totally understand that. But Trump is such a dangerous, and and it's just gotten worse, right? It hasn't gotten any better. No. It's like you could drop this podcast at any point uh, in the next three months. And I guarantee you that within the last five days, Trump has done something that is just like, why would he do that? Why would he, you know, like, you know, an infrastructure bill that, that, you know, obviously is super popular and would help constituents in this congressional district why would he primary the people that are voting for something that like you know from what i understand of politics it's like people like it bridges well they because we have terrible infrastructure we're like 17th in the world in infrastructure with you know and and trump of course was the builder memory is a builder and when i was there every week was infrastructure week and we never got it done and he had the Republican majority in both houses. He never got it done. And we have shitty infrastructure in this country and we really need to do this. Yeah. And it, it, it was insane. I mean, a lot of Republican senators voted for it because they knew that if they didn't, Democrats would just put it in the reconciliation package and Republicans wouldn't get any credit for it. But the House is nuts. And now he's he's going after them. Well, he's going after the Senate. Uh, Kevin, and Kevin McCarthy, though, is also, like, th- thinking of punishing them, but not Gosar, for putting yeah. out a video yeah. of him stabbing <laughs> Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, I mean, you can't do that in any other workplace. You can't, like, no. you know, uh, Gary, did you... Uh... <laughs> Did you just uh, put out a video? I know that you and Melinda don't get along, but did you put out a video where you're stabbing her? Yes, I did. Yeah, I did. <laughs> but, you know, but we're both fighting for that that promotion, so. Uh, well, um, she didn't like it. Did you have your the people that work for you harass her? <laughs> it is strange. So, like, historically, there's obviously been Paul Gosar's. Right. I mean, there's there's I I saw footage of a guy who uh, even after Nixon resigned, he was loyal to Nixon and uh, thought it was a big conspiracy and all this stuff. But like there's there's no consequences. That's that's what also is scary is that like for me as this outsider who uh, is fascinated by politics you know, like we look at people on the right, on the fringe right, and they're like, you know, Hillary's going to jail next week. You know what I mean? Like, and we're like, okay. But then on January 6th, people were like, well, once Biden gets in, we're, there's going to be some consequences for this. Both sides is, you know, like, I feel like I've been sold a bag of goods because 
I mean, do you think that it's like they're like, well, we can't punish the we can't criminalize the other party because then Trump will immediately do it. But my point is Trump's going to do that anyway. Well, yeah, it's uh, yeah. If we get rid of the filibuster, well, then McConnell will do whatever he wants to do. Well, you know, they don't want to do anything with all they want to do is confirm judges, which they can do without the filibuster and cut taxes, which they can do without the filibuster, but we discuss that a lot on, yeah. on this show. So let's, let's yeah. not okay, you and sure. I do it. Okay. Uh, because wh- one of the things about politics, and I, I told you about this is that I thought Trump was a stand up. I mean, I thought, yeah. and I thought that's how he won the election. Yeah. When he call other people low energy, I think all he ever did was in the morning, get in a limo, go out to Teterboro, get on his private jet, yeah. have a, Big Mac, yeah. land, get picked up by a limo, go to a venue with 20,000 people who laughed and cheered at everything he said. Mm-hmm. And he just, he was talented. He could riff. Yeah. None of the other candidates had any chance whatsoever. And and that's not exhausting to do compared to like talking process. You you get energy yeah. from that. You know that. You yeah, get yeah, energy yeah. from the Yeah, crowd. you can't like last night I did a show last night and it's like I couldn't sleep because it was there's a certain amount of energy no matter how tired you are that's going to keep you awake. But I think that Trump and we talked a little bit about this. Trump not only is a a great comedian, he's the ultimate put-down comedian. Like that is that's what I call it, like eighth grade. Like, and you know, like, look, people love roasts and stuff like that. It's not my thing, but like, there is an appetite for that that is fulfilling from a carnivorous viewpoint. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's a lot of blood in the water in put down humor, you know, like whether it be someone doing your mama jokes or saying little Marco, it's like, that's way more interesting than talking about how are you going to pay for... Oh, yeah, the others in those debates. Yeah. You couldn't listen to the others because they would do political talk and on policy. (laughs) Well, you know, it's also weird because it's not to say that some of these politicians aren't funny. Like, I think Al Gore is funny. I think that Bill de Blasio is pretty engaging. But, like... The camera on Al Gore or the even like Bob Dole was a pretty funny guy. He was really funny. Since uh, this this interview, uh, Bob Dole passed and Dole was really funny. He was the one, I think, who came up with uh, there was three ex-presidents standing uh, and I think it was Carter, Clinton and Nixon were standing uh, and and Dole said, "There's see no evil, hear no evil, and evil." Uh, he was a really great senator, and and we miss him. But like when the camera was on, it you know like some of it is you have to play the role. But like Al Gore, De Blasio is a pretty charming guy. I know people are probably gonna you know send me hate mail or whatever. But like he's I've met him a couple of times. He's pretty charming. He he can work a room like a good politician should. But like on TV, he doesn't come across like a six foot four engaging guy he you know and that's the same with al gore and with bob dole so like that's where trump has a real skill and i think some of it is the fearlessness that like i think great comedians have like chris rock has a fearlessness 
I mean, I've seen him go on stage when he's just working out material and he'll just, he'll like bomb for like 10 minutes. He'll be like, what else? And he's just trying things out. Mm -hmm. Whereas I'm kind of, uh, you know, I need to go to my inside voice. Like me, like me. <laughs> and and that's where I think Trump has that. Not only is he a put down comic, but he is also fearless. Well, he's a he's sick. At his own rally, he said, "I got the vaccine." People booed, and he's like, "Yeah, yeah." yeah. Like you know, like most politicians would be like, "Oh no, they're booing," and he's like, "No, no, no." Like he is. That's a skill. That's a skill. That's why I'm voting for Trump. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, his people will go with him on it. I mean, he yeah. can contradict himself. It's just crazy making. And it, by all logic, after January 6th, everyone should have said, okay, huh, dodgeable. Never want to see that guy again. And we're going to see him again. What chapter was January 6th? Because obviously grab him by the pussy was one of the chapters where it's like no one could survive this. Right. No one could survive January 6th. No one could survive grab them by the... And there's probably three other ones that we're not even thinking of. Well, I the first one he did that I thought was, okay, that's it, is I like people who weren't captured. <laughs> and I'm just going like, you can't do that. He, right, right. This guy was shot down doing... Uh, he was the Republican... <laughs> And 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 also candidate two years you know four years ago and you go like you asshole yeah is all I could think of and isn't doesn't everyone else think that and evidently not there is the I mean I never understood the strange bellows uh, strange bedfellows thing of politics anyway I know that I mean maybe because I went to a, such a small high school and I'm not really a a group kind of guy but like. And I don't play golf. I don't know. Like, I always picture that people that play golf with people they don't like. I'm like, how do you do that? That's like hours of your day. And, you know, there's classic examples of Ted Cruz and even McCarthy, you know, like where you're like you and even McConnell, you know that Trump will throw you onto a, a pile of flaming rocks that are on a subway track, you know, you know, in the next breath. Yet they're like hanging in because they don't want to be Adam Kinzinger, right? Well, that that's the thing is that my former colleagues uh, are afraid to be labeled as uh, a never Trumper, and so they won't say the election. They will not say the election wasn't stolen because if they say that, Republicans in their state will go, "Oh, he's a never Trumper." And and the only way this will be a, a senator from Oklahoma or somewhere yeah, like yeah. that, and the only way they could ever lose is to a Republican and a Republican to their right and a Republican is a Trump Republican. And the base believes, you know, the Republican base are Trump people. So, I mean, Chuck Grassley is 87 years old, yeah. running for reelection. He said that uh, Trump had lied about the election being stolen. Yeah. He just just embraced him in Iowa. You know, if you're 87 years old and you aren't ready to maybe sacrifice your career <laughs> on yeah. principle, yeah, there's probably are not going retiring. to do it. But that's also my country club thing. It's not the country club. It's the restaurant. You want to eat a meal in peace. 
So if you want to eat a meal in peace in your home state, like who was the Tennessee uh, senator that had a thing with Trump and then he left? And Oh, Corker. I don't know if Corker can enjoy a meal in Tennessee like he should be. Like he was a successful guy. And I bet you like when he's in a restaurant, people are like, you didn't support Trump. You know, like he can't have a meal. And so that would be interesting. I, I mean, I my thinking is that he's going to high end restaurants. He's a pretty wealthy guy. Yeah, uh, it was a developed shopping centers. Yeah, and um, that's in those places. That's the those kind of wealthier Republicans are they're for Trump because of tax cuts, but they may not hate Corker for yeah. We're we're actually trying to game where <laughs> it's like where Corker can Corker go to dinner. is like he can go to dinner. Uh, <laughs> he's like, how do you feel about going to dinner? He goes, I can go to dinner in Nashville within the twenty five mile area, but there's a restaurant in Johnsonville that I want to go to that I can't. A barbecue place that's the best. <laughs> I'm, I'm he's fine. He's fine. Yeah, I'm not worried about him. But he did, yeah, he just bailed because he didn't want to hang around. I don't think he liked being senator particularly. I thought that he was kind of positioning himself to possibly run for president. Like, so Chris Christie is obviously. Yeah, isn't that interesting? I sat next to him on a plane when I was flying. I hope it was first class. Yeah, yeah, it was first class. What's so great about New Yorkers and people from New Jersey and Connecticut is they'll, they're not, like, impressed by anything, really. So I sat next to him. And people would come up, and they were generally pretty polite. They were like, like you know, New Yorkers will not hesitate in saying, you know, pretty much anything. But like, and he was pretty cordial and stuff like that. And it's like he likes the game. I think he wants to be in there, right? Yeah, and I think it's a you're long right. shot. It's an absolute long shot, right? They might as well. What else, you know? And uh, his relationship with Trump is very strange because. You know, he got COVID at that yeah. Rose Garden yeah. super spreader event <laughs> that yeah. they had when Coney Barrett was announced. Thank God he had no comorbidities. He's like, I got all of them. But like, <laughs> I, so like the strange bedfellow. So, and I didn't ask him about this, but like, so you're the first one yep. when you, when you bow out, you, you endorse Trump and people are like, what are you doing? Then you set up his transition then Trump uh, fires you, know, you because it, his son-in-law. Yeah. And then you hang in there. I mean, that's where politics to me, I'm like, that's weird. Do you know what I mean? Like that's, you know, look, I'll kiss some ass to get a movie role. But like, I don't know if somebody screwed me over. I, I don't know if I could bite my tongue that much. No. But, uh, speaking of movie roles. I don't think I've seen you in a movie. I I uh, I only do movies that no one ever sees. <laughs> so uh, what's the latest? Because uh, I know you were shooting something I was in, earlier. Oh, I'm I'm in Peter Pan. I play um, Mr. Smee in a live action version of Peter Pan. Jude Law is Captain Hook, uh -huh. and some young kids. What are, is the character, Mr. Smee? Mr. Smee is uh, Captain Hook's kind of first mate. Oh, and he's a dunce. I always play dumb guys. You do, you do that really well. Well, it's fun. It's you know, you and I did a commercial. I don't know if you remember that. No, we did. 
It was just a, I think it was for parquet. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I remember doing, that was the only commercial I've done. Oh, really? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it was, uh, what, what, what did you play in it? I think I played the butter. Hey, I just wanted to jump in uh, to the interview now and then clarify something, which is uh, Jim played a baked potato. And we'll play that in a in a moment. And I remember being cast for it because I had been told that I sound like you. And I was like, all right, there's and I was like, Parquet. And you so you were communicating with this thing. I wasn't on camera, but they had me there. And I would say, Parquet, butter, butter. You know what I mean? I'm here to see if an expert can taste the difference between butter and new parquet. You, sir, are from Oregon. Oh, I would have thought Idaho. I get that a lot. Well, let's just do it. Mmm. Very creamy, rich. It's butter. Parquet. It tastes like butter. Parquet. I, I, I don't like pepper. Uh, yeah, but I do. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Easy. Hey. Whoa. The richest, creamiest parquet ever. Nothing says butter. Like new parquet. I did a lot of commercials, and uh, I remember having friends that would refuse to do commercials, but they would have uh, day jobs where they worked for corporate America. I'm like, what is the difference exactly? You know what I mean? It's like you're you're working for the man in some form. Well, they're they don't want to be seen working for the man publicly. Yeah. And parquet is the man, by the way. Parquet is. Uh, it's the ultimate man. It's like anti-nature. It's anti-butter. You know, in Wisconsin, I think margarine was illegal. In Minnesota, it was. Yeah. And then, but it was, it was legal. This is, we had this stupid thing <laughs> where you couldn't sell it colored. Oh, really? Yeah, this is when I'm a kid. And so you would get it in a pouch, and there was this food coloring it would be in a plastic clear pouch, and you would, with your thumb, break the seal on the food coloring and then squeeze it and mix it around so it become, it would look like yep, butter. butter. <laughs> but, and that was because we had dairy farmers, and yeah. uh, Wisconsin had that too. So, yeah, yeah it was illegal. It was illegal. Uh, for a while, and then, then you had to do the... <laughs> then they're like, all right, what if... You had they to make squeeze it. they have to color it themselves. Yeah, <laughs> if they want it to look like butter, add an extra step, even though it's healthier for people, right? I'm not sure it is. Probably not, right? Uh, probably not, actually. Right. But at that time, they were like, "This is going to save people." Yeah, yeah, because they lied. Well, because maybe they didn't know. I don't know. Yeah, let's not let's not go down that because. Um, I don't know the science. It's a conspiracy. <laughs> I'm joking. So this movie, do you have fun doing those? Do yeah, like no, I really love. Uh, I love acting. Uh -huh. I mean, it's really, it's a different thing. Um, I mean, stand up is so rewarding because there's that immediate feedback. Oh my god! That yeah. um, is, you know, it's really kind of cruel when you are writing something and you don't get feedback <laughs> versus stand-up. You're like, is this anyone? Is this good? You know, like you write an essay and people might tweet about it. But so, yeah, the immediate feedback. But I love acting and being like a piece in a larger part of a story. And like... Well, stand-up is kind of lonely. But you also have 
complete control. So I like I like acting because, you know, you've given up a lot of control. Like, in fact, I like not having the authority Mm -hmm. and acting and being kind of a soldier for someone else's vision. I like that. Um, Maybe because I've I've you know, I had my own show for a while and you work with people and you're like, I can't believe how difficult people are. So (laughs) having gone through that experience, (laughs) I always want to be the person that the director or the writer or the producers are like, well, that, at least there's Gaffigan. He's not a <laughs> you know I mean? Well, I'd say your uh, your rep is pretty good on that score just in general. You're Hopefully. A good, good guy. Yeah. Okay, the special is, and you shoot like one a year. Is that about right? Well, oh, yeah. I mean, we can talk about that because yeah. there is something about, you know, why do one a year? Because like if you asked me 10 years ago, I'd be like, that's stupid. Don't do one a year. How do you know you're done? And, you know, like I'm friends with Seinfeld and he's like, don't do that. That's mm-hmm. dumb. <laughs> but I believe that or I've grown to believe that there is a certain life of a joke that, you know, as you know, you you do a joke a couple times. It's really fun. Then it kind of like maybe it gets stale then you try and you learn how to perform it better mm-hmm. and then maybe you add an element but then it's pretty much locked in and so right, right. i think that the reason i and you're sitting there going like i can't believe i'm telling this joke again <laughs> yeah there's something there's something about that but there's also yeah. there's the fear that i like you know that's you know live performance is you know just because it's worked a million times doesn't mean it's uh, it's going to work this time. So I like the the new feeling of jokes. I guess that's what of I'm course, thinking. of course. Uh, I always feel like when I was writing at SNL and just anything new. Yeah, I knew I was. I just felt as good as my newest thing, my yeah. latest writing. Yeah, that was always like when people were like, "What's your favorite joke?" I'm like, "Whatever the newest one is." Yeah, but you're touring. You do three hundred. Yeah, I mean, I know that sounds insane, but it probably is a lot like that. But how much is in town here at Gotham? Or? I would say, you know, half of that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because so, uh, it sounds like a nightmare and to be on the road. Yeah, no, that's, <laughs> you know. By the way, I go on the road and it is, I mean, it's, it's. I, I understandably, it's unfair to leave my wife with five kids like, see ya. But so like there is part of me that I'll typically get up with my kids in, in the morning and help get everyone out. But when I'm on the road is when I am in full writing mode. And what's your writing process? I mean, how do you? It's usually identifying something that bumps me, you know, that seems odd or it'll be an awkward experience like I did a show last weekend and uh someone you know uh got ill so we had to stop the show and they turned on the lights and the paramedics came in and then the person was fine then i have to go back up and i'm just kind of like riffing on it it's like what is that person's conversation with the doctor you know they're like well i don't know i was listening to jim gaffigan and i just felt nauseous (laughs) (laughs) and the doctor's like that'll happen (laughs) and you know and then there's the uh the doctor saying anything else and it's like i just had this vision of just like this white blob it was like a light but i knew it was jim gaffigan <laughs> you know what i mean so it's things like that awkward situation and you know some of the chaos of having five kids you're exposed to a lot of awkward situations like i remember one time i 
uh, Seinfeld said, he goes, I, I'm kind of jealous that you have five kids because you're exposed to so much discomfort. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, because the, the humor can come out of that, right? He doesn't seem to be uh, exposed to a lot of discomfort. He's he's a total workhorse. He's like uh, he's like my comedy rabbi. Remember, he did a, a documentary about yeah. throwing away his. Uh, he yeah got rid of his act. He yeah, did it on Broadway, right? Yeah, and then he started over. And uh, I thought that was really interesting. It's fascinating, you know. Like stand up has shifted so much during my career. Like there used to be a comedian would do maybe one special. And or maybe two, like there was the exception of Carlin and Richard Pryor, but most comedians would do their act. I mean, uh, even going back to the Borscht Belt, people would have their act forever, right? Mm-hmm, sure. But uh, there's been this shift where, you know, now Chappelle releases one every three months. You know what I mean? So it's, you know, it's a little bit all over the place, but there's an unspoken agreement with the audience that you're going to show up with new stuff. Right. They think they want the old stuff, but they want the new stuff. Of course they do. Yeah. And that means you got a lot of, you got to come up with a new act. Yeah. And that's fun. And that's the self-assignment and you also evolve and you, you can't do the same thing. It's like a, it's like a friendship. You have to, those, those good friendships are, are not the people that just do the same thing. They challenge you and they they evolve and uh, they make you question things. So hopefully, I think like an audience, it's like a friendship. <laughs> well, uh, I, I can't wait to see the special. Oh, well, thanks. And uh, do you, did you do the thing about the billionaires in space? I did. I did that. It yeah. made me laugh. I, okay. I saw that when you did that yeah. in Gotham. Well, let's uh, let's get together again. You got it. Time. You got and, it. Uh, Comedy Monster. The, the special is Comedy Monster, and it's on Netflix. Yep. And uh, it uh, premieres on the 21st of that's December. Right. So that's in the, uh, we're dropping this one on the 19th. So building anticipation. 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 And how does one get Netflix? I'm sorry. <laughs> what if they're like, no, then you're like, so what is Netflix? <laughs> Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember Remix and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast. Once upon a beat, yeah. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed 
music field weekly party where hip hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.